You hear me now? Good morning. How we doing? Here we are, surviving, carrying on. Praise God. How we doing in the parking lot? I love the enthusiasm. Those horns, they're just so loud. That's great. So whichever way you're joining us, uh, in the parking lot, here in the auditorium, uh, online here with Amanda. Amanda said that she's some of the vocabulary that I'm bringing, it's stretching her a little bit, and she's having to learn some new signs to share. So praise God for all the ways that this is stretching us. So I call this series The Unity Dreamers, and we're looking at kind of some of our roots as a movement to see some of the thinking behind kind of the reality that has come about in subsequent times. So hopefully you're enjoying it. I realize that, you know, this title, Unity Dreamers, for some of you, history is not your favorite thing. And so uh, you maybe think of this series more as like dead guys and boring stuff or something like that. And so I appreciate your forbearance with all of that. But we have some interesting stuff in our history. Some of the things that we've gone through, some of the things that shaped us, it's not all just state straightforward cookie cutter, and uh, there have been some surprises along the way. And one of those surprises, I think, was uh, what history came to call the Cane Ridge Revival. And so we left off last week, and I just kind of left it hanging there, some of the strangeness of this event. Um, uh, and I think it's something special that God did to wake people up. And the fruit of it, I think, is good. My point was not to suggest that we try to replicate some of that. You don't manufacture stuff like that. If you're in a place where you feel like you need to make up stuff like that, uh, that's not a good place to be. We can just be honest before the Lord. At the same time, we don't have to fear these things, I don't think. We don't have to dismiss them and pretend like they're not there. Um, There is a breadth of expression that was part of our legacy and part of our early history. And in subsequent years, we have become a movement that really we've become highly intellectual. And even though we're a fairly small group, we have produced some top-notch Bible scholars. Uh, we love to study the Word. We love to learn and make connections. We love to grow in our understanding, and these, I would say, are all very good things. But I think that there have been times that, to use Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians 5, that we have indeed put out the Spirit's fire. There have been times when we have treated prophecies with contempt. And sometimes we have produced disciples that look and act a whole lot more like Pharisees than they do Jesus Christ. So when I graduated, when I was a graduate student in Abilene Christian, you know, back before I was, my beard was, my chin was so gray, um, I had two different professors who would teach openly that all miracles ceased with the book of Acts. With the death of the apostles, there were no more miracles. That was the teaching. 
Well, the first problem that I had with this is the New Testament shows that the working of miracles was broader than just the apostles themselves. And second, the pages of church history, 2,000 plus years, they mention all kinds of things that, sh- that prove to the contrary, that God has never abandoned his creation and he's continued on. So the problem I have is, When I say that the acts of God are restricted to a specific group of people from a specific time, and I I say that based on nothing more than my own bias and my personal experience, I think it's a way that we try to tame God. It's a way that we distance ourselves from um, a God who will not be tamed. And it's a way that we try to put them in a box sometimes. So how this played out in my life. So I'm, I'm studying, I, I get an undergraduate degree, I, I, I get a graduate degree, and I, I want to be a missionary. I go to the mission field, and uh, well, every, everywhere's the mission field, but we moved our family to Africa. And I was confronted with whole different set of circumstances and worldview and experiences, and I didn't have a box for any of those. Uh, It's embarrassing to admit that as a young minister and missionary, there were years that would pass where I would hardly pray. I would do the obligatory prayers in front of people, in front of groups, and, you know, the prayers with meals the nice flowery phrases that we put out there. But I didn't pray because prayer didn't make sense to me. Prayer for me was dry and boring. I never had discovered at that point how prayer can become something that's life-giving and how prayer can at times become so, something so powerful it's like you're being swept away in a flooded river. Because my worldview in a lot of ways was a closed system where God, he no longer interacts with us that way. That's not a real possibility anymore. God no longer intervenes in history that way. And if you believe that, maybe you wouldn't put that in words, but if you believe that somehow in your heart, why in the world would you try to pray? You see, we are more than just brains on popsicle sticks. We're more complex than that. Our needs are a whole lot greater than that. And God wants more from us than just the people who know the right things, who have the perfect doctrine, and who do things perfectly correctly, which you're never going to do things perfectly correctly. I hate to pop that bubble case you were trying. God wants more from us than that. He wants, in the end, nothing short of our hearts, heart, mind, soul, and strength, our complete and total surrender and allegiance. See, the Bible isn't just a list of rules for us to dissect as like some kind of lab experiment. Um, there are preachers who come and they will parse koine 
Greek verbs for the church as a way to show you how smart they are and to make you, you know, not want to question them or something like that. I don't know. So we can have so much head that at times we're in danger of losing the reality of a heart that is sold out for Jesus Christ. The pages of Scripture, I'd invite you to think of it. It's God's love letters to us. It's God's attempt to woo us, to bring us to a place where we trust Him. And we don't just give lip service to the things that we profess, but that we actually start to try to apply those things to our real lives and live them out. See, a lot of us don't realize that a living and interactive relationship with God is a real possibility for our lives. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. That is a real reality that is available to us, not just words hidden in a songbook. Did you know that real change is possible for you? God sees you. God sees you in all of your brokenness. He knows all the ways you run from him. He knows all the ways you've ignored him. He knows all the ways that you have sought your own will above his will and his desire for you. He sees it all. He sees us in all of our greatest shame, our greatest brokenness, our greatest neediness. And he calls to us in that place to say real change is possible. Real transformation is possible for us through the Holy Spirit and through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed our life from all the different pits that we've dug. So it shouldn't surprise us that there have been times in history where God seems to walk right through the boxes that we've made, the boxes that we try to put them in. He doesn't like to stay in those boxes very long. And I think that's something about Cane Ridge. Cane Ridge Revival was something like that. You see, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and others who were represented at that Cane Ridge Revival, none of those church denominations had a theology to account for what was going on. They didn't know what to do with it. So it wasn't long before church governing authorities made moves to condemn these revivals and to discipline the ministers, at least, who happened to be involved with what was going on. But Stone and others got wind of uh, these events, and they were um, not just people who participated in this kind of rebellion, but they saw the fruit of it and the good that was coming out of it. And it wasn't necessarily the strange manifestations of the Spirit themselves, but the fruit of lives that were changed, faith that was growing, people who had been asleep in the pews for years, waking up, hungry for more, looking for more, 
And most of all, I think they saw the power of Christians of a whole lot of different denominations coming together in the name of Jesus Christ with just a simple gospel message. If we remember back a couple weeks ago, we talked about the religious condition of the United States in the early 1800s. See, genuine faith in Jesus Christ wasn't at its lowest today, although we feel like that, and there are certain things that amplify that. But the early 1800s, it was a mess. It was a mess. And so Barton Stone described the United States before Cain Ridge as being like this. He said, So low had religion sunk, and such carelessness universally had prevailed, that I have thought that nothing common could have arrested the attention of the world. And so there was something very uncommon that happened in the Cane Ridge Revival. And people began to wake up. You see, revival comes to us sometimes as a much-needed answer from heaven. And you can be upset that that kind of stuff is in our history or upset that I'm emphasizing that as I preach about it instead of just ignoring it. But I say, oh, that God would visit this land with such a move of his Holy Spirit. It was so awesome that it would shake sinners and stir his saints to come back to life and to be bold and to take their faith seriously. Well, the biggest, the biggest um, objection of these various church governing, governing bodies, it wasn't the emotionalism of these different exer- falling exercises and different things like that. That wasn't their biggest uh, uh, objection. It wasn't that people, as a result of these revivals, were freeing their slaves or other things like that. Uh, the biggest objection that they had, especially the synods of the Presbyterian Church, was that these union meetings, there were young Methodist men who would meet young Presbyterian women. And in many cases, they would go and get married. And a lot of times, these newlyweds, they weren't joining the Presbyterian Church, they were joining the Methodist Church. That was the concern of the leadership of the Presbyterians at that time. So they began to persecute the ministers under their jurisdiction who had taken part in some of these revivals. The first one was a guy, a minister named Richard McNamar, M-C-N-E-M-A-R. He was the first of the revivalists to be charged with heresy, preaching heresy. So the Presbyterian Synod of Kentucky gathered in September of 1803 to begin a series of heresy trials against restorationists in their their jurisdiction. 
So the five revivalists present at this heresy hearing were Robert Marshall, John Dunlavey, John Thompson, Richard McNamara, and Barton W. Stone. Stone's the one we're most familiar with. But before the Synod could even discuss uh, these heresy charges, these five men announced they got up before everyone and they renounced the authority of that synod to make these kind of judgments. Instead, they withdrew and they formed a group that they called a new name, they called the Springfield Presbytery. So within five months of forming the Springfield Presbytery, though, they decided if they're going to go back to the Bible and they're just going to follow the Bible, you know, even though they had the best intentions and they wanted to lead in the right ways, they decided that there's no authority for governmental structure in the New Testament. It's described as being something larger than the local congregation. And so with that conviction, they decided that they need to close this down. We don't have authority to be this presbyterian uh, this Springfield Presbytery. So on June 28th of 1804, uh, just five months after forming, they wrote a document that is famous in the history of our movement. They signed a document that has come to be known as the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And they had several things that they said in this document. They said, we will that this body die, be dissolved, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body and one spirit, even as we are called to one hope of our calling. They said, we will that our power of making laws for the government of the church and executing them by delegated authority forever cease, that the people may have free course to the Bible and adopt the laws, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We will that the people henceforth take the Bible as the only sure guide to heaven. And as many as are offended with other books which stand in competition with it may cast them into the fire if they choose, for it is better to enter into life having one book than having many to be cast into hell. So there is a certain satirical style that they wrote with, and yet they were very sincere about what they were sharing. So some of the things that this document stressed the need to preach the simple gospel of the Bible rather than the traditions of men. They stressed the complete independence of the local church and its right to examine a minister to his soundness in the faith. So that's something that's part of our legacy. If I, you know, you hire me and you discovered that I'm a real crackpot and I'm, I'm teaching truths that are you know, not biblical and things like that. Uh, there were a lot of groups and churches that have no say in whether and who gets to preach before them and who gets to bring a word from the Lord. Um, and so that's a certain strength of our movement that we have a freedom um, to make sure that we are getting the best teaching possible. And then number, number three, 
they decided a uh, part of the Springfield uh, Presbytery, Presbytery Last Will and Testament that we should simply take the name Christian. Let's just use the names we find in the New Testament. Let's just be a Christian. So it's from this time on that Barton W. Stone no longer called himself a Presbyterian. He said this in the Last Will and Testament. We will that preachers and people cultivate a spirit of mutual forbearance, that we pray more and that we dispute less. Oh, the conflicts and the brokenness we could have avoided if we put something like this into practice more diligently. Well, it's from this time on that Barton Stone signed his name differently. He started writing Barton W. Stone, E-C-C, and he said the E-C-C is this, an elder in the Church of Christ. So before the year 1804 had ended, this little restoration movement that was breaking out with Barton W. Stone, they included 15 different churches, seven in Ohio, which at that time was known as the Northwest Territory, and eight congregations in the state of Kentucky. So now we got to back up and try to catch up some with the Campbell side of the story. So you got young Alexander Campbell and his father, Thomas Campbell. And uh, the reunited Campbell family, they had a problem. They had some big restoration dreams and some big ideals that they wanted to put in practice, but they had no church. And so eventually, the Christian Association of Washington, that group of people who would come together to discuss restoration ideals, they formed a little church. Here's a picture of it. It was called the Brush Run Church. Opened May 4th, 1811. They opened that congregation with one elder, Thomas Campbell, four deacons, and a membership of 30 people. And two practices which have become distinctive in the Restoration Movement were accepted by the Brush Run Church from the very beginning. The weekly observance of the Lord's Supper and adult baptism by immersion. See, in early 1812, Alexander uh, had a baby girl. And when he had a baby girl and coming out of a Presbyterian background, he began to ask questions. What do I need to do to take care of this baby of mine? Does this baby need to be baptized? And so he began at that time to study Christian baptism in earnest. Well, he reached the conclusion that he had not been baptized in a, a manner that is uh, found in the scriptures themselves. And accordingly, on June 12th of 1812, Alexander Campbell, along with his wife, his father, his mother, and others, were immersed by a guy named Matthias Luce, a Baptist minister. Not according to Baptist usage, it said, 
but upon a simple confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. At his baptism, Alexander Campbell quoted Peter's words from the day of Pentecost, a verse that has been memorized by almost every Restoration Christian since. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He stipulated with Elder Luce that the ceremony should be performed precisely according to the pattern given in the New Testament. So if I'm remembering correctly, before this baptism, he and his father preached for seven hours. And it went on for so long that the guy came at the beginning, he went to town to go get a haircut, and he came back in time to witness the baptisms. Well, the Baptists, they took great delight in the immersion of such a prominent Presbyterian family, although they didn't understand that the Campbells at this point were not very Presbyterian anymore. And they didn't understand that the Campbells were not very Baptist either. (laughs) The Campbells began a friendship with the Baptist church that is a Uh, a partnership that took place and lasted for 17 years. They never became officially Baptists, and yet they held many things in common with them. Alexander Campbell even began publishing a monthly journal called The Christian Baptist. But it was always an uneasy union of sorts. First off, The Campbells made clear that the little brush-run congregation would always be free to teach and preach whatever they learned from the Holy Scriptures, regardless of any human creeds, regardless of the pressures of any uh, governance structures. They would always get to decide for themselves the way to go for that congregation. So... uh, I should also just make a a footnote statement. It's really from the time of his baptism and that study on Christian immersion that Father Thomas Campbell began to recede into the background. And Alexander Campbell really rose to prominence as far as a leading figure in our restoration movement. So the Christian Baptist. Here's a copy of one by Alex, edited by Alexander Campbell. It was not a typical Baptist publication, but a platform where Alexander Campbell was free to explore restoration ideals. And he talked frequently about a theme he called a restoration of the ancient order of things. So really, the journal sought to flush out these ideas that Thomas Campbell had talked about in his declaration and address. Ideals such as Christian unity based on taking the New Testament as their only creed. It was clear that Alexander Campbell had a keen mind. And the leaven of restoration thinking began to spread throughout Baptist churches and Alexander Campbell's influence grew. 
Over the years, it was discovered, uh, he was reluctant to do it at first, but it was discovered that Alexander Campbell was a very gifted debater. And uh, he would enter these debates first with Presbyterians and then with other groups, uh, people who were uh, rationalists, atheists, a Catholic bishop at one point. And uh, it really, these debates, he mopped the floor with his opponents. And his rationalistic, uh, straightforward, confident approach, it would just undo his opponents. And so his audience grew. His readership grew as well. His influence began to grow. And as part of that, he came in contact with other, uh, other Baptists and other, other Christians who really res resonated with this kind of restoration plea and this restoration ideal. And so it was sometime in the winter of 1821 or 1822 that Alexander became acquainted with a young Scotsman who in the years ahead would become Alexander Campbell's closest fellow worker in the restoration movement. His name was Walter Scott. Born in 1796, died in 1861. Uh, Campbell's writings and influence had made him some friends among frontier Baptists in the Northwest Reserve, or the state of Ohio as it's called today, the Western Reserve at the time. These Baptist churches of what was called the Mahoning Association decided to discard their creeds and to only follow the Bible as their teaching and their creed. But despite reaching these conclusions and despite making this uh, decision, the 16 churches of this association were not growing, and in fact, after they made that decision, they were losing a lot of members. So in 1827, the association resolved to employ a full-time evangelist to work among these Christians. And at Alexander Campbell's suggestion, they hired Walter Scott. Scott was a passionate preacher, and he had been highly influenced by Alexander Campbell and also Christians in Scotland of the Haldane movement. And so he began to preach what he called a gospel restored. He began to focus on things like faith, repentance, baptism, the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that was the focus of his preaching. Uh, this kind of simple, straightforward, reasoning from the Scripture kind of preaching, it sparked a revival among the Mahoning Baptist churches. And within a year, the membership of these churches had more than doubled from what it was the year previous. And this revival is very different from the revival that came out of Cane Ridge and was taking place elsewhere in the West. This revival didn't have the same earmarks of emotionalism and these strange exercises. Uh, there were no continuous camp meetings going on. It was a kind of revival that came from people sitting down together 
and reasoning from the scriptures with one another. And then applying the things that they discovered, applying that to their faith and practice and living those things out in their real life. So this so much transformed the Baptist Mahoning Association that by the year 1830, they'd been so transformed that they decided to dissolve the association and simply become Christians. So Walter Scott is most well known in the restoration movement for coming up with what we sometimes have called the five-finger exercise or the plan of salvation. For those of us who speak, I don't know what you call it, restorationese, if you speak Stone Campbell, if that's in your vocabulary, uh, you've probably heard about some of this. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Five steps of the things that we're supposed to do, our response to God. So, some of us might be surprised to find out that originally this plan of salvation that Scott put together included six steps. And some of the steps were very different from the ones that came to us. This is what they were, this is what they became. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. But originally, this is what they were. Belief, repentance, baptism, forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and receiving the receiving of eternal life. Well, he decided six was a little cumbersome, so he decided to make that five. So he subsumed the receiving of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just to, if you have the Holy Spirit and that gift, eternal life, we don't have to worry about that anymore. God's going to take care of that. So that was his five-finger plan of salvation. Later generations would remove forgiveness and the Holy Spirit from the mnemonic, and instead they added hearing and confession to keep the tally at five for five fingers. So basically, what later generation restorationists, what they removed from the original plan of salvation, which, let me just say, it's all in the Bible. All of these, you know, we hear, we believe, we, um, we, can, we repent, we confess, and we are baptized. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive forgiveness from God. Uh, we can have assurance of eternal life. All of these things... Uh, are in the Bible, but these are the things that we emphasized then. So later generations removed the Holy Spirit and forgiveness, and they added hearing and confession to keep the tally at five. So basically what this means is later generations of restorationists removed from the original plan the parts of salvation, which are really God's part in all of this. God's part is to forgive. God's part 
is to give the gift of the Holy Spirit and make the Holy Spirit available to us. So I guess it makes a certain sense to emphasize um, what am I responsible? What are, the, what, are, what are human beings responsible? Let me just get the list of the things that I need to do. I guess that makes a certain sense. Uh, but without God's part, does our part really matter? I'm just posing that as a question. It matters because God says it matters. It matters because God forgives. It matters because God meets us in, in our profession of faith, in our turning to him, in our baptism, to present us with a whole different set of possibilities for our lives, to live in an interactive relationship in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, from Thomas Campbell, we early on, we talked about, you know, we speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. And that's meant a lot of different things to us over the years. We'll talk about that some next week. But the Holy Spirit is one area that the Bible speaks a lot about. But in subsequent years, our movement became very silent about the Holy Spirit who fills the pages of our New Testament. But that wasn't the way it was from our beginnings as a movement. I can't help but wonder how we might have been different as a movement if we had not let go of this emphasis on the Holy Spirit and this focus on the Holy Spirit. An emphasis on the person of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the role of the Spirit in our lives, the power that holds, the glue that holds it all together, the power that changes it all, makes everything sweet. You see, unity is a particular concern of the Holy Spirit. That's a premise that I've had throughout this uh, sermon series. And I find it wonderful that in our roots, we have something as wild and crazy that we don't know what to do with as the Cane Ridge or Revival and something as discipleship-focused as sitting down and reasoning with the Scriptures and just pleading from the case of Scripture, studying the Scriptures as also being something that creates revival among us. It's almost as if these two revivals in our movement, the Cane Ridge revival with the, with the stone side and the Baptist Mahoning Association represented by uh, Walter Scott's evangelistic activities, it's almost like we have the heart and the head of our movement represented in those events. But it's the Holy Spirit who helps us navigate the distance between the head and the heart. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us hold those tensions 
together so that we can be united. It's the Holy Spirit who makes, takes these things and makes them flourish. There's a wide diversity in our movement. Ron, you can come on up. My invitation is, uh, we just keep that in mind. That the Spirit working in our lives, He's able to hold this show together. We represent very different ideas and a diversity uh, that you would think it just doesn't go together. It can't be held together. But the Holy Spirit does it. and He's done it for a long time, and He'll continue to do it. And as we uh, surrender to the Spirit's will in our lives, as we seek the Spirit, we don't need to let go of, you know, uh, the Bible study and uh, the authority of Scripture that's common, and we don't need to fear what God might be bringing in, in a more exotic sense to us. I think there's plenty of room for us to stand, and we'll let the Lord direct where this is all going to go. I've taken the time to do this because a lot of times we look at our history, and we just see it as a prohibition. We can't do anything different because we've received this. We can't explore these different things because this is the form we have. This is the structure that we have. This is the box where we want God to sit in and stay. But as I study this history and as I share it with you, I'm finding something different. I'm finding that there is a wide range of expression there is all kinds of creativity. And I'm not saying they didn't make mistakes and there weren't people that got things wrong along the way. But these were people who were seeking the Lord and letting the Spirit guide. And it's amazing how this movement sprung up from such diversity people across oceans and denominations in different times and different places. This is the Holy Spirit at work. And he helps these people discover each other. And he helps hold those tensions together as church. And that's what he's doing today. And we can trust him in that. We can trust him in that. So let's uh, continue to dig into this and uh, continue to glean some lessons for us. We're not going to go too much longer uh, with the series and uh, just a couple more weeks. But I'd invite you to just kind of reflect on these things and think about them. Uh, because I don't see a prohibition for us, but I see doors that are wide open for creativity and for expression. Um, I see wide open possibilities um, where I think a lot of times we have been pretty timid with anything that's related to poss the possibility of change. But if we look at the beginning of our story and our roots, there is a width of expression and experience that I think is really beautiful, and we can learn lessons from that too. 
So uh, whatever needs you have for uh, putting on the Lord in baptism for the prayers of this church, uh, you come forward and talk to me and let me know how we can serve you as a church while we stand and sing together.